4: We're talking about college football there to finish off the first hour. I'm going to dive into that a little bit more. But I did want to mention that there was a lot of questions. Uh, we're talking about Sunday Night Football, about Drew Brees and his arm strength and whether he was going to be the guy to finish the season for the Saints. And Jameis Winston came in, but uh, I think Drew Brees answered a lot of the questions. The reason Jameis Winston came in was because the Saints had gotten up 38 nothing. And then eventually the Bucks kick the field goal to try to, which by the way, I understand like kicking the field goal to avoid getting shut out, but it's such a white flag to be waving to go kick a field goal to avoid the shutout, right? I mean, just to be in that position where the beatdown is so severe that you're just like, oh, I want to make sure we get some points on the board. I, I kind of feel like it's an insult to have to kick the field goal there. That's like a very college move to me, just to avoid getting shut out. And I understand if you've got a kicker who needs work, but Ryan Suckup is a longtime veteran in the NFL. It's not like he's a college kicker who's never really attempted very many kicks or you're trying to get some sort of preparation for, uh, for a scenario like that. So um, I just thought bringing in Jameis was, first of all, really pretty unbelievable in terms of, uh, of Jameis Winston coming back on the field for Tampa Bay. But to have put a beat down like that on the Bucks as they did was, I feel like this one stings. This one lingers. This is worth more than one game. And I know the Saints had already beaten the Bucks once before, but now that Michael Thomas is back and the Saints offense and certainly their defense, and to me the big storyline, in addition to the fact that the Saints put up the points that they did, was that the, really the Bucks' defensive line, offensive line, could not handle the Saints defensive line. There were a lot of hits put on Tom Brady over the course of this game. And so as you kind of look forward, I know the benefit for the bucks is, hey, at least if we're not winning the division, we would go on the road against probably as the best NFC wildcard team. We'd get to play against whoever the NFC East Champ is. but Brady would have to do something he's never done before now to make the Super Bowl, which is win three straight playoff road games. Could he do it? Sure. But I like a lot more the position that Drew Brees is in right now as well. Now, so I hit that. I also wanted to kind of circle back around. We were talking about the college football playoff picture in the wake of Notre Dame and Florida getting big wins over Clemson and Georgia, respectively. We're going to talk more about this with Joel Clack going forward. And By the way, Todd Furman, one of my co-hosts on Fox Bet Live, is scheduled to join me uh, in the next segment here and uh, break down everything that he saw in the NFL and in college football. But, to me, as you look at the college football landscape, we basically, as we roll into November, have narrowed down the number of teams that are capable of making the college football playoff. We've narrowed it down to Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, Florida, Texas A&M, Notre Dame, Oklahoma State, if I'm being generous, and the Pac-12 champ, if I'm being generous. So as we reach this scenario, we only really have eight teams alive. And I understand Cincinnati fans, and I understand Liberty fans, and Coastal Carolina, and everybody else out there who may be a really big college football fan. And if your team is undefeated, or they have one loss, or they're rolling, I understand why you think you should be in the mix there. I just, I'm telling you, there's only eight teams, in my opinion, that can actually make the college football playoff, and again, that breakdown is, and these are the teams that I think are going to make it, right? I think Alabama's going to make it, I think Ohio State's going to make it, I expect that Clemson will come back and beat Notre Dame and win the ACC, so I think Alabama, Ohio State, and Clemson are going to make it, and then I think we'll have to make a decision, Florida, Texas A&M, Notre Dame, Oklahoma State, or the Pac-12 champ, depending on exactly how the rest of the season goes. And I feel like Texas A&M, Florida, and Notre Dame are prohibitive favorites there. And if you're curious what that would need to look like, well, I think if Notre Dame loses to Clemson, but they only lose that game, they're probably in. Florida has to win out. If Florida wins out, they would be in. Uh, Texas A&M needs Florida to lose to Bama, And they need probably Notre Dame to lose two games. And then if Texas A&M won out, they would potentially be in. And I think the other significant factor is here, we're probably trending towards, in my expectation, an Ohio State-Clemson game in the 2-3 matchup that would be a rematch of what we saw last year. So that is a breakdown of what happened on Sunday Night Football. Also a breakdown of the larger college football universe. Let me just say this too. I have no idea what's going on now with... Uh, with Michigan with Ohio State sorry with Michigan with Penn State or Nebraska Tennessee is struggling in a big way these are a lot of power programs Florida State certainly I mean in the 90s those would have been the teams that everybody would have talked about and said man these are the best programs in America uh, Penn State's 0-3 Michigan's 1-2 and just got completely whipped by Indiana props by the way to all the Hoosier fans out there who have put up with so many tough defeats over the years, and I mean, look, I mean, the the nineties the are over. Uh, Tennessee, Michigan, Penn State, um, uh, Nebraska, and Florida State are just having awful seasons all combined, and in the Big Ten in particular, you got zero and three Penn State, you got one and two Michigan. And you've got 0-2 Nebraska. I mean, that is a brutal scenario to find yourself in. And then you want to throw in as traditional powers, at least in the 90s and throughout, really, the history of college football. You've got Tennessee, who dropped a really bad game against Arkansas. Props to the Razorbacks. But Tennessee gave up 24 points in the third quarter. No points the rest of the game. They were up 13-0 in the half, and they ended up losing that game. And then Florida State is just continuing to flounder as well. Uh, all of those programs struggling immensely. I uh, want to bring in now uh, a guy who uh, who was traveling for us over the weekend. Dub, you're almost so young, you don't even remember when all those teams were really good. The Penn States, the Michigans, the Nebraskas, the Tennessees, and the Florida States. I mean, that was five of the of the Blue Bloods for much of the 90s, and frankly, for much of the history of college football. But speaking of Blue Bloods, you were in the Bluegrass for the Breeders' Cup, and you were representing Outkick. How was that weekend? You watched a lot of horse races on Friday and Saturday. Did you win any money?
3: Absolutely. It was awesome being up close and personal with some of the – some of the best athletes in the world. If we're going to be frank, those horses are unbelievable. Authentic eventually uh, won the Breeders' Cup Classic. Who also won the Kentucky Derby, and I was basically right there on the fence. You, you right sent next me to a the...
4: video, like you were right there at the finishing post.
3: Yeah, it was awesome. It was unbelievable. I know going into it, I didn't know you know how many fans there were going to be, and I'm not sure how many of these people were fans or how they were associated with uh, the race with all the races, but. There Maybe was, owners. Yeah, but I mean, there was a few thousand people there for sure. So it was like a perfect number of people. There was no lines to uh, make your bets. There was no lines to get food or drinks. There was no lines in the bathroom. And like that picture saying, oh my God, the weather was unbelievable. It was sunny and 70 both days, not a cloud in the sky. It was it was a great weekend, great experience. So uh, I was happy to uh, represent OutKick very well this weekend in Lexington, Kentucky.
4: Yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad you got to go up there. Yeah. Uh, we were both excited for Sunday Night Football. Like I was texting you like, hey, it's going to be pretty cool. Can't wait to see what's going to happen. I mean, is this a... Every now and then, like when, when we saw the Packers get destroyed, I came on the next day after that and I was like, hey, I'm going to give the Packers a mulligan here. Because it happens in the NFL every now and then. Aaron Rodgers' team, everything went wrong. Packers got destroyed by the Bucks." I feel like this is more of a statement because the Bucks it feels like, to me, put a lot of effort and energy into winning this game. And last, uh, what was it, I guess Monday, we gave a pass to a large extent for the way that the Bucks played against the Giants because we were like, well, you know, they were looking ahead, they were getting ready for the Saints. But if you go back and watch that Giants game, there were a lot of open receivers that Daniel Jones missed. Just didn't hit them. And there were plays to be made against that Bucks defense. And for the most part, the Giants didn't make them, and they still had a chance on that two-point conversion to get the win there. Guess what? The Saints and Drew Brees made those plays. It didn't look like the Bucks had any ability to cover that, uh, that talented Saints uh, receiving core. And as if that were not enough, they couldn't really get any pressure on Drew Brees. He had all day to throw back there. This feels like a pretty big statement win that we got from the Saints last night. Like This wasn't some sort of aberrational result. They now have beaten the Bucks pretty soundly twice. And this felt like the Saints saying, this is still our division. We own the NFC South. Get on the road if you're going to make a run in Tampa Bay. Maybe we'll get a third matchup because I do think there's a decent chance uh, that the Bucks would go on the road and beat the Eagles or whoever it is in the NFC East and potentially be able to rematch uh, for a third time against the Saints. But two beatdowns now, two double-digit wins. I'm not sure anything's going to change to convince me that the Bucs are better than the Saints.
3: Yeah, it's tough to say. It's a bad
4: matchup, it Absolutely.
3: Feels like. And Drew Brees, speaking of him, he spread the ball out last night, hit 12 different receivers on New Orleans. That seems uh, not like a good sign for the Buccaneers. Also, Tampa Bay... They're running backs combined for four carries for nine yards. So that's never going to win yeah. very many games.
4: And Brady was just, I mean, again, some of those interceptions he threw were absolutely awful, including the last interception. I don't know why they left him in and let him keep getting hit, but I felt like it was pouring salt in the wounds that the Saints decided to go ahead and let Jameis come in and, uh, and, and take the final few snaps uh, back home in Tampa Bay. The only thing that could have made it better is if Jameis had come in and thrown an interception, uh, pick six. That would have been uh, that would have been a perfect back home. But he did throw for a first down. Uh, all right, when we come back, uh, we've got Todd Furman scheduled to join us. At Todd Furman on Twitter, we'll break it down with him. This is OutKick. Thanks for hanging with us on a great Monday in November. I hope the weather was perfect where you are. It was great for me. I was at that Bears-Titans game and had a fantastic time. Up next, it's Todd Furman. This is OutKick on Fox
2: Sports Radio.
0: com slash sports tire the way tire buying should be
4: joined now by one of my co-hosts on the Fox bet live show born as lock it in he is Todd Furman at Todd Furman Appreciate uh, him up early with us on a Monday morning after a lot of things going on in college football and the NFL Furman, uh, we were so excited. I mean, everybody was, I feel like, to watch this Saints-Bucks game because of what it meant in the NFC South, and it was a Sunday night capstone on a big weekend of football in general, and it just turned into an unmitigated disaster for the Buccaneers. I mean, a beatdown of epic proportions. How do you assess this going forward as it pertains to the overall power, you know, ratings and power dynamics of the NFC?
5: Well, coming into it, as far as the NFC was concerned, those two teams we saw last night were one and two for me. But what I'll end up doing is flip-flopping them in my power ratings. The Saints will now be considered the best team by the numbers uh, in the NFC, knowing with Emmanuel Sanders and Michael Thomas back, they can be that much more dynamic. And that was kind of the game that we needed to see from New Orleans to remind us that, hey, look, this team isn't just going to rely on its offense. They can be very good on the defensive side, uh, and it was arguably one of the best clinics we've seen from them in quite a bit of time. This is a Saints team with veterans that have been here and done that that I think now may be able to go in overdrive and suddenly we will remember why. This team was picked by many, myself included, to ultimately get out of the NFC and most likely take on Kansas City in the Super Bowl.
4: So, what has happened with this I know we haven't had Michael Thomas for a long time and obviously he makes this offense a lot more dynamic but I am maybe less surprised by the Saints offense getting rolling than I was by the Bucks defense getting dominated like they did right what do you think went into this game what happened
5: well I think it's games in a row now where we've seen some of the vulnerabilities in the Bucks' defense. A lot was made of this defensive backfield. That was the biggest question mark. Carl Davis, Jamal Dean, Antoine Winfield. Could that group hold up if Tampa wasn't able to get a pass rush? And to the Saints' credit, they built a fortress around Drew Brees. He really wasn't touched throughout the course of the game. Had time to sit back there like a surgeon and got everybody involved. I believe he had 11 different receivers that caught a pass in the first half. And when you begin to know that Drew Brees doesn't have to play favorites, he's got his safety check down guy and Michael Thomas available, it makes New Orleans that much scarier. Uh, and if Sean Payton and company are just beginning to scratch the surface, again, we've seen it before from mainly the New England Patriots. We always get nervous about them when they struggle in September and October, but they hit their stride in November into December. Maybe the Saints are going to use that same blueprint and suddenly we're going to be talking about them as the team to beat. The real question I think all of us have is with only one bye, potentially, unless it gets reduced to zero, who will have that home field advantage? And it hasn't been kind to of the Saints in the past, maybe this is the year they're finally able to get over that postseason hump
4: all right so also in the nfc the seahawks ran into some trouble for uh you know their defense has been running into trouble all season but they've been winning a lot of close games what did you see from the bills in their ability to get that win
5: that if you can throw the ball on Seattle you're going to have a ton of success and you look at Buffalo they had an unseasonably warm day yesterday in western New York there were no elements to speak of and Brian Dable their offensive coordinator had a game plan to attack Seattle at its most vulnerable Josh Allen looked like the guy we saw early on in the season that all of us had talked about hey look maybe he's going to be an MVP dark horse threw for over 400 yards got three different receivers really involved in the party that all had 70 plus yards receiving and to Buffalo's credit they said the hell with being balanced we're just going to go out there we're going to chuck it and we're going to prove that seattle can't get to our quarterback and they can't slow anybody down in the open field meanwhile on the other side it was a friendly reminder that russell wilson's going to keep the seahawks in every single game but if he even looks human i'm not sure the seahawks have that secondary pitch where they're able to try and beat teams that have as many weapons as buffalo put on full display yesterday
4: the game that I went to watch, and I know you grew up in Chicago, and we're talking to Todd Furman. He's one of my co-hosts on Fox Bet Live. It airs uh, every single Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. Eastern, 4 Central, 3 Mountain, 2 Pacific. I think I got all that right. Uh, the team that uh, that you grew up watching, a lot of the Bears, they are really, really bad on the offensive <laughs> side of the ball. I mean, just atrocious. And seeing it in person – really kind of brought it home even more it's not like the titans have a juggernaut defense but they looked like the they look like the 85 bears going up against uh, the chicago bears what's going on there like i know mitch trubisky hurt his shoulder but nick Foles has not been the answer uh to me it feels like when you look at the nfc north right now the packers have to be a prohibitive favorite in that division
5: as they are, the Packers uh, will check all the boxes. And I think what's interesting when you want to talk about the precipitous fall that the Bears have had, uh, a couple of weeks ago on Thursday Night Football, they closed as a three-and-a-half-point underdog when they beat the Bucks outright. On Monday night, a week from today, they project to be a two-and-a-half-point home underdog to a Vikings team that, albeit surging, still doesn't have the same win-loss record and probably didn't have the same street cachet that the Bears did. But you mentioned that offense, and it actually looked good for Bears standards uh, against the Titans yesterday. 22 first downs nearly 400 yards of offense, they averaged five yards per play, and they held the Titans in check. The problem was they couldn't make the big play, and when you don't have the playmakers, it's so tough to consistently sustain drives. You saw Tennessee hit the home run to A.J. Brown for 40 yards. They get the defensive score, and when the Bears are down 17 nothing heading into the fourth quarter, going to be very hard-pressed to try and come back when you can't string together drives going two for 15 on third down. Nick Foles isn't the answer. We said it this offseason. Bears fans thought he was going to be the panacea uh, to Mitchell Trubisky. The Look at you, the
4: panacea. You got the vocabulary workshop out? This uh, 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 You tried I'm to you step know, it up?
5: I have my SAT book in front of me now trying to pan through to figure out how I can make your audience smarter on a Monday morning. Um, But but when you look at this Bears team, clearly they have to figure out what their future is going to be at the quarterback position. And quite frankly, the guys they have on their roster right now aren't going to get it done. So maybe they're going to look to try and trade up in the draft. And suddenly a guy like Zach Wilson, who we saw put on a tremendous display against Boise State Friday night on FS1, becomes that much more intriguing if the Bears have the potential to grab him in the top ten.
4: Ravens, it's been a big topic, you know, what's going on with the Ravens, they lose to the Steelers, they also lose to uh, the Chiefs earlier in the season, they're going on the road, looked like some money was coming in on the Colts, Colts want to continue the good run that they've been on, let's be honest, and the Ravens really kind of took control of this game late, what did you see from their defense, what do you see looking forward for the Colts?
5: That was one of the more interesting games of the weekend. You mentioned that line move. We saw the Colts open as much as a three-point underdog. Early in the week, Marlon Humphrey tweets out that he's going to be unavailable because of COVID protocols. The Ravens have a boatload of defenders that were on the COVID reserve list. They ultimately all played, but you saw that number get bet down in that pick'em range. You saw it flip-flop from the Ravens minus one to the Colts minus one, and watching that first half, the Ravens looked like they'd picked up right where they left off against the Steelers to a certain extent. They didn't score an offensive touch down. It was a uh, scoop and score that kept them in the ballgame 10-7 down at the break. And then suddenly it was almost as though they flipped a switch. Lamar Jackson looked a lot better both as a runner and a passer. They played with a little bit of pace and tempo uh, and pitched a shot out against the Colts in the second half with a 17-0 scoreline. The Colts offensively, I was a little bit disappointed in their performance because they moved the ball quite a bit early on and just weren't able to sustain some of that success. And now for Indianapolis, arguably their biggest game of the season, a short week when they come into your neck of the woods uh as short underdogs against the titans uh, a team that indianapolis has really owned over the last handful of seasons
4: chiefs uh certain and that's going to be a fun game on thursday to see what happens in the afc south there the titans have a chance because the schedule gets a lot more difficult to make a statement uh in that division although we talked about this a little bit on the show the other day and i think we talked about it last week I'm not really sure that home field advantage is going to matter that much at all once you get to the postseason in the NFL, with crowds not being that much of a factor. Maybe weather is going to matter a lot more. For instance, right now if you look at the if you look at the AFC playoff standings the Ravens would be favored to come uh, and play against the Titans right now. Well, is that really that much of an advantage for the Titans? That's still a super difficult matchup, right? Whether you play it in Baltimore or whether you play it in Nashville, it's not like the crowd is going to have a tremendous impact in that game.
5: No, and I think you have a decent amount of depth in the AFC. I mean, aside from Kansas City, who appears to be the clear cut number one, in my opinion, from a power number standpoint, I'm not going to discount the undefeated Steelers, uh, but those two teams probably, you know, a step above in terms of their versatility uh, with the knack for running the football. They can do things in the passing game, and both, you know, despite people wanting to poke holes in Kansas City's resume, this team is extremely good in the secondary, and we've seen that on display when it needed to be there. Although when we talk about teams seeded three through seven, uh, you can throw a blanket over all of them, and other than individual matchups, I think it's going to be anybody's best guess who ultimately emerges, let alone who ends up securing some of those playoff spots. If we're talking about Buffalo as a three-seed winning their division, or whoever emerges from the AFC South, who comes out of the AFC West, so many question marks, and I think it'll make the AFC playoff picture that much more Interesting to watch because after kansas city and pittsburgh we're not quite sure who that third best team is
4: so steelers you mentioned them uh, you don't i agree with you i think the chiefs should be the team that's considered to be the best team in the afc right now even if the steelers potentially get home field advantage and that buy in week uh, in week one of the wild card but when you look at the steelers and the cowboys you to your credit said, this is a crazy line. You picked the Cowboys to cover. You even picked on our television show the Cowboys to win the game outright. Uh, and they almost did. But the Steelers have played a lot of close games. They've won them, but they've played a lot of close ones. How would you assess the Steelers in the AFC right now?
5: I think they're the second best team. I mean, this, uh, when you, Steelers edition, when you look at what they have pieces wise, you have a veteran quarterback in mid-ben that I still quite frankly don't think is up to 100% just yet. A young receiving core that he's developing a rapport with. Each week they appear to get Better and better as they're on the same page with Deontay Johnson, James Washington, Chase Claypool, and of course Juju Smith Schuster. And defensively, Pittsburgh can get after the quarterback. They can make you uncomfortable in the pocket. And if Pittsburgh is able to run the football, that's the blueprint that you need to beat Kansas City. I mean, we saw yesterday with the Carolina Panthers. They got Christian McCaffrey on track early on in that game. They put together a 15 play march and had Kansas City playing from behind the eight ball. I just think Kansas City can beat you in so many different ways. They can do it running the ball. They they can do it throwing, as we've seen over the last two weeks. It's been the Patrick Mahomes show. And defensively, while they're not great on paper against the run, this is one of the league's best secondaries. I mean, I have them as a top three unit, and if you get down and you're forced to throw into the teeth of that defense, it's not going to bode well. Pittsburgh uh, going into Arrowhead, should that be the AFC championship we get? Uh, you would only be looking at the Steelers as, you know, slightly more than a field goal underdog in that kind of spot.
4: We're talking to Todd Furman. He's on Fox Bet Live with me. You can follow him on Twitter, at Todd Furman. All right, let's pivot a little bit into college football couple of massive games in terms of the playoff picture Notre Dame gets a win in a top five matchup which is uh, you know rare obviously historically for Notre Dame they dominate on the lines of scrimmage Trevor Lawrence of course was not playing but uh, that is still a really significant storyline going forward how did that kind of upset the overall uh, rankings for who's going to make the playoff what did you see and what did you take away from that game
5: I thought it was the kind of game from the Irish that we've grown accustomed to them losing in the past uh, when, when you look at the way that that thing played out you figured okay even though they were able to take the game into overtime this is where Clemson's superior talent will ultimately show up but the problem that I have with this game and it's not to take anything away from Notre Dame beating a number one team in their building when they're a four and a half five point underdog is Clemson didn't have Trevor Lawrence and for as well as DJ played he's not quite the dynamic signal caller that Trevor is in terms of making plays when you need him to Clemson was real banged up on the defensive side and again, it's next man up mentality, 2020 a lot different, so you don't want to make too many excuses, but suddenly these two teams appear to be on a crash course to maybe meet again in the ACC title game and it'll beg the question, if Notre Dame wins on their home field but loses in the ACC title to a Clemson team with Trevor Lawrence whose resume is better and does the playoff committee side with Clemson? Because I don't see a scenario right now where you're going to see two teams from the same league ultimately getting in, even if that meant that USC plays its five games in the Pac-12 and goes undefeated, I feel it's too big a brand with an undefeated record to get ignored after they withstood the upset bid from Arizona State. So uh, the committee is going to back themselves into a bit of a corner, and this is why I really believe we should have had eight teams in the college football playoff, because this year, more than any year in the past, sure, BYU and Cincinnati don't match up with the Alabamas of the world, but it would have been awfully fun to see some of the more dynamic teams in those group of five at least get a seat at the table, and so we don't have to be left with any questions about what could have happened instead of seeing Alabama Clemson Ohio State and as it stands right now Notre Dame the four best teams in the country
4: all right uh we talked last week and I saw the line come out and I just flat out didn't understand it I mean and this happens just a few times a year but I watched all of the games be played uh, between Florida and Georgia and I saw the matchup and I said look Georgia doesn't have the horses to be able to keep up with Florida now to their credit the Bulldogs came out good scheme scored 14 points early but then it was basically all Florida the rest of the way. What did the oddsmakers get wrong? What were they not seeing that, that, that maybe I was seeing? And I think you agreed with me that you thought Florida was the better play there. What happened in that game?
5: The term that we use, uh, and it's always tough to try and quantify in gambling, is cluster injury. So when you look at the next man up mentality, we talk about running backs and wide receivers, especially in college, being a dime a dozen, a defensive player here or there being replaceable. Uh, But what you saw in full display there was a Georgia defense that was extremely banged up coming in. They had the unfortunate injury to their All-American safety in Richard LeCount, who wasn't out there, who you thought was going to have to feature prominently in the defensive game plan for slowing down Kyle Pitts. And it's not an excuse. But, I mean, Georgia was down four or five guys. They got out to 14 nothing lead. But you saw the difference. In 2020 in college football, you can't just win by getting stops. You have to be able to score with your opponent. And the class difference between Kyle Trask and Stetson Bennett was on full display. Bennett had some throws early in that game that he couldn't make to keep some of the momentum. Georgia loses another receiver to a gruesome injury early on in that game. Uh, and to Dan Mullen's credit, he had a better offensive game plan. He got his playmakers in space. Uh, and I, you begin to wonder if it's a you know. Passing of the baton, a changing of the guard within the SEC East, because all these times we've talked about Kirby Smart getting his program headed in the right direction. That's a bad loss. And Florida's recruited at a very high level. If Dan Mullen's able to bring in the right players and beef things up on the defensive side, suddenly we could be talking about Georgia's window closing just as fast as it opened up.
4: No kidding. Uh, and and I, you know what? It's interesting, Todd, is I was down in Atlanta on the day after they uh georgia lost on that second and 26 or whatever the heck it was you know the pass from Tua that kind of made Tua a star that 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 alabama comes roaring back in the second half after they benched to jalen hurts and i was stunned by how many georgia people said oh we didn't get them this year we'll get back and i said well you you know it's really hard to get to the championship game right and you know you're thinking like you are going to be alabama and the reality is you haven't won a title since 1980 and I'm just not sure now. It seems like Georgia's pretty far away from winning a championship right now. Now, maybe it's just a quarterback away, uh, and maybe they'll find their guy soon. But right now, there seems to be a pretty good gap between them and uh, and Alabama for sure, uh, but also just in terms of being able to contend for a championship because Florida's going to have to replace Kyle Trask, but I kind of like the trajectory of Dan Mullen's program a little bit more right now.
5: Well, I think if you're a Georgia fan, you're sitting here waking up Sunday morning uh, after the loss against Florida going, how did we let Justin Fields off of our campus? I mean, that's the transcendent (laughs) talent at the quarterback position. That's a good point.
4: And and also, you know, they thought they were going to have Jamie Newman and then they thought they were going to have JT Daniels and instead they've ended up with Stetson Bennett. So certainly it's a recognition that uh, Kirby Smart has that they weren't elite at the quarterback position. But if you look at, you know, certainly... at at Ohio State, Alabama, and Florida, who are three teams that are in the mix to be playoff teams, all of them have really proven quarterbacks who are difference makers.
5: And and the interesting part about all of it, too, is they do things so differently. Mac Jones, a little bit more of a pocket passer. Justin Fields right now, more touchdown passes than he has in completions through the first couple games of the season. Notre Dame, kind of an outlier because Ian Book, we know, isn't going to play at the next level. Trevor Lawrence, he's in a class by himself. And when you look at the other teams in the top 10 from the power conferences, I mean, even at BYU, Zach Wilson is going to be a first-round draft pick. It's just a question of how high his stock will rise. Kellen Mond has kind of flipped the script in terms of what we thought he could be down there at College Station showing a little bit of versatility, not only as a runner, but also as a slightly more polished passer. Uh, And Georgia's going to have to find that quarterback, because unless you have that elite guy under center, the days of winning a college football national championship, in my opinion, with a game manager like Alabama did for quite a few seasons, those days are long gone. You need a Joe Burrow, you need a Trevor Lawrence, you need a Mac Jones if you're going to not only get into the college football playoff, but win two of the most difficult games on your schedule uh, and achieve college football immortality.
4: Yeah, there's no doubt at all there. We're talking with Todd Furman. You can follow him on Twitter at Todd Furman, Foxbelt Live. Uh, it's a little bit early, I know, but I feel like there's a lot of excitement about it. The Masters is going to be played on Thursday. And I feel like there's a lot of people out there listening to us right now this morning that are like, oh, wow, really? That's right. You know, uh, early on, a last question for you. How would you break down the Masters? Is there any different from an odds maker perspective? Any difference on the Masters played in the fall as opposed to in the spring? Does the course play the exact same? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, but I, I can't wait to see what Augusta looks like in fall, probably because for most of us, this will be the only opportunity we ever see uh, the Masters in the fall. Hopefully we never have another reason to play in the <laughs> fall, uh, but it's it's definitely going to be a strange feeling.
5: You know, there won't be a difference in terms of the odds, and the biggest names are still going to command the most respect uh, in the betting markets, but I can tell you from a handicapping perspective the guys that I've talked to said there's no way the course is going to play the same in November that it did during April. So whether it's some of the elements and it's a little bit wetter or it's a softer course, you're going to have to handicap things differently to figure out those guys that have a historically good track record here may not like the conditions nearly as much as if it's a little bit colder or anything else. The one thing I can tell you, though, after watching the Houston Open this past weekend. A lot to be excited about because it was good to see Dustin Johnson back on the course in a tie for second, so we know his form is there. Brooks Koepka, who missed some time dealing with a knee injury, he finishes in a tie for fifth. So all the big names that you were expecting to see in the final groups on Sunday all appear to be in good form, from John Rom to Roy McElroy. We're not sure we're going to get out of Tiger at this point, but I think we're in for a treat and you're going to see some of the biggest names in the sport going out there, looking to relish the opportunity of unusual circumstances. Uh, and what better way than to cap off a great college football and NFL weekend than with a little Masters on Sunday afternoon.
4: Amen. It's going to be an awesome weekend. Todd, look forward to hanging out with you this afternoon on the show. I'm sure you're going to be disappointed to see me wearing the crown again, but it's what happens when you're dealing with a great gambler like you have to deal with me on a day-to-day basis.
5: You know, one of these days, I'm going to send you, your lovely boys and wife uh, a, some sort of fire starter to light that white polyester jacket on fire so <laughs> none of us ever have to see it again.
4: And my Hawaiian shirt, Titans 6-2. and two. Uh, I'll take it at the halfway point. This is Outkick, the coverage with
2: Clay Travis.
4: we started off the hour talking about this game, and frankly, we're going to continue to talk about it. The Saints looked like the best team in the NFC last night. They went on the road against Tampa Bay, beat the Bucks for a second straight time, beat up on Tom Brady, dominated against that Buck defense, which had looked very good for much of the season, and put Brady on the ground a lot. Drew Brees couldn't get hit. This is a dominant performance, as we have seen, in the NFC this year. Now, to be fair to the Bucs, they put on a dominant performance against the Packers earlier this year. But effectively, when you look at the rest of the schedule, uh, right now, the Saints have one team with a winning record left on their schedule. The Bucs only have two teams left with a winning record. But now you've got the Saints having won twice against the Bucks, opening up a substantial lead in the NFC South. And so if you're a, a Saints fan this morning, I think you can wake up and you can look around and say, wait, hey, maybe we've got a chance to actually be the overall number one seed in the NFC. And if you're a Bucks fan waking up this morning, I think you have to basically look at the landscape and say, the reality is we're going to be, when you look at the Saints schedule, it's going to be a surprise if the Saints drop very many more games. They've got the tiebreak over us already. And... It seems unlikely with 7 games to go that the Bucks are going to be able to catch the Saints. So if I'm the Bucks, if I'm a Bucks fan or if I'm Tom Brady or Bruce Arians or anybody else in that team, I'm looking at the rest of the schedule and saying, "Hey, we may have to go on the road and win 3 games uh on the road. Fortunately, you would start on the road against the NFC East, which theoretically would be the Eagles, but I would imagine the Bucks would be a fairly substantial favorite in that game, 5 or 6 or 7 points. So you'd be able to at least think about getting a win there. And then at some point, maybe you can get revenge against Drew Brees. But to me, one of the great storylines here is Drew Brees, who a lot of people have left for dead this season. Oh, his arm's not working. He can't throw the deep ball anymore. His shoulders got issues. I mean, he was a surgeon last night. Came out through 12 different receivers. Uh, They could have scored whatever they needed to. If they had needed to score 50 in this game... The Saints' offense could have scored 50. And the result is, Saints are in great shape. I mean, I think there is a very strong argument that the Saints could be the NFC Super Bowl representative. And meanwhile, for Tampa Bay, which is going to be hosting the Super Bowl in their stadium, this was a statement game for them. They fully expected, I think, Brady and company, that they would come out and win this game. They would be 7-2. and two. They would take the lead in the NFC South and they would be in position potentially with the Seahawks loss to be able to talk about being the number one overall seed and getting the bye. And now, in, uh, after a debilitating performance and an absolute beatdown that was delivered by Drew Brees and the Saints, I think you have to take a step back and say, man, maybe we were expecting too much out of the Bucks, and maybe we've been underrating the Saints, and frankly that this is just a good matchup potentially for the Saints that they are better Based on what we've seen already, they won in week one and now they're winning at the midpoint of the season. And if you're a Saints fan right now, you've gone uh, all the way from, hey, questioning a lot of what's going on with your team to if the season ended right now, the Saints would be the overall number one one seed in the NFC and everything would have to roll through the Superdome. Now, it's not a normal Superdome performance because it's not going to be crowd, the home field, not going to be loud. It's not going to be the normal home field advantage. But the Saints, sitting right now at six and two, have to feel pretty good against them about themselves. They're five and one against the other teams in the NFC. Uh, they have uh, they they win the tiebreak over Seattle and Green Bay based on the best win percentage in conference games. And so, if you're a Saints fan right now, you're sitting as the number one overall seed. Seahawks are the two, Packers are the three, and Tampa Bay has fallen all the way from. If they had won this game, they would have been the number one seed in the entirety of the NFC to all the way now to the five seed. And this is what happens when you have this really ridiculous situation where uh, where ultimately the teams that get the best seeds do so by winning their division. And you can make an argument that maybe by the end of the year, the Saints and the Bucks could be the first and second best team in the NFC. We don't know. Maybe that could happen. But unfortunately the Bucks are going to fall all the way to the five, uh, the, the five seed. And this is a little bit what we saw last year happen, right? In the NFC West, where the 49ers and the Seahawks were playing, the winner was going to be the overall number one seed, and the loser was going to fall all the way to the five. And that pivot point is oftentimes a seismic difference in terms of where you end up and what your trajectory can be. So props to Saints, the Saints fans, Drew Brees and company. They ain't dead yet. That arm still got a lot of life left in it. And as a result, the Saints right now are the number one team in the NFC. When we come back, top of hour three, we'll talk uh, about the big stories from college football and the NFL. Joel Clatt is scheduled to join us. Lots to get into with him. I appreciate all of you hanging out with us on a great Monday in November on Fox Sports Radio.
2: Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com.